This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It's a great pleasure to introduce to you Natalia Molina. She joined us at UC San Diego in 2001, having received her PhD at the University of Michigan. She is professor of history and urban studies, and she has just stepped down from a stint as associate vice chancellor for faculty, diversity, and equity. And I've had the pleasure of watching her with tremendous admiration in the great work that that job has involved. And I've told her how much I admired her in her work in that job. She's been extremely effective. Well, I was delighted to see just before I came over here that Professor Molina's new book, How Race is Made in America, subtitled Immigration, Citizenship, and the Historical Power of Racial Scripts, was just introduced on UC San Diego News and an article written by our Dirk Sutro. I think it goes fully live on the website tomorrow, but if you Google her name, you'll find it um, tonight. And there you will read that this book, which has just come out in 2014, treats of the topic of Mexican immigration from 1924 up to 1965. That's the year of the Immigration Act that kind of paved the way for the immigration of larger numbers of Latin Americans and Asians. And in the book, she introduces the concept, the title as well, of racial scripts, which denotes the notion of racial stereotypes, how they are socially, politically, legally constructed in such a way as to influence immigrants' treatment in the courts, by law enforcement, in public health, and by employers. I'm sure that some of the findings in that book will be featured in tonight's talk, So it's a great pleasure to welcome to the podium Professor Natalia Molina, who will be speaking on how scientific racialization shapes Mexican immigration policies, 1848 to the present. Before we start, I have a confession. That was such a nice introduction, but I usually shudder when people introduce me as a historian when I first meet people. And that's because when people hear I'm a historian, they usually have two reactions. One are the people that say, I hated history in high school. And the other group says, I love history. I watch the History Channel all the time. What did you think about the Battle of 1812? And I don't know (laughs) some of those things, and um, I don't tend to watch the History Channel. The way that I tend to think about history is as a storytelling device. History, we're, we're, we're all storytelling animals as human beings, whether we're historians, professors, teachers, mothers, fathers, children. We're all storytelling animals. And history is a way of us understanding ourselves, our society, our culture. Um, I'm really interested in history as a vehicle to understanding this thing called race. What, what I call in my book um, how race is made in America. I'm really interested in this category of race and what goes into it, how we make it, and then how we can unmake it. 
Because as we know, certain categories of race um, are somewhat problematic. They stigmatize groups. Uh, they affect them in negative ways. And so my talk tonight is really giving you one slice of my research that says uh, a lot has gone into making this category of race that we call Mexican, that we think about Mexican, since Mexicans were first incorporated into the U.S. in 1848 till today. And we see that a lot in today's immigration debates. Uh, so I'll start with some of those immigration debates just to put out there what categories are out there. And then I'll take you back in time. And then I will show you. I will prove to you by the end of the night. You will be on the same side as my you know, of what I'm arguing here, that decade by decade, this category gets remade. But this negativity associated with it keeps getting reinforced in different ways. And science, public health are some of the main ways in which that happens. In July 2015, billionaire Donald Trump stirred up a hornet's nest when he announced his bid for the Republican presidential nomination. In his speech, he put immigration front and center, claiming when Mexico sends its people, they're not sending the best, they're not sending you, they're sending people that have lots of problems, and they're bringing those problems. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime. In the face of the critiques these statements elicited, Trump doubled down. The next day, he issued a statement in which he augmented the list of problems Mexican immigrants brought to the United States, stating, quote, the largest suppliers of heroin, cocaine, and other illicit drugs are Mexican cartels that arrange to have Mexican immigrants try to cross the borders and smuggle in the drugs. Likewise, tremendous infectious disease is pouring across the border. The United States has become a dumping ground for Mexico and, in fact, for many other parts of the world. Trump's easy slippage between portraying Mexicans as criminals and labeling them as carriers of disease demonstrates how unchallenged and cemented this stereotype of Mexicans is and how effective it is at constructing them as an unworthy immigrant group. While Trump's comments may seem outrageous to some, they certainly were not an anomaly. Just the summer before, a major news story broke that the large numbers of unaccompanied minors were trying to cross the uh, U.S.-Mexico border. In 2011, children in this category numbered 6,800 per year. In 2014, an estimated 90,000 children were detained. About 25% of this group was from Honduras fleeing drug violence. Many commentators, members of humanitarian organizations, and ordinary citizens urged that this influx of youth be treated as a refugee crisis, since the threat of violence and death was so prevalent in the children's countries of origins. Others, however, countered that fra the framing of the situation by invoking images of these Latino children as disease carriers. This tactic foreclosed any discussion of conditions in the sending country, immigration laws, or attention to other factors that might better illustrate how to address the situation. Protesters in places like Murrieta, California, and Vassar, Michigan, staged anti-immigration rallies in which supporters carried signs that read, Stop Ill Illegal Immigration, Deport Now, and Protect Your Children from Diseases. And this woman has a shirt, has a shirt, the woman on the right, the tank top, that says, if you can't feed them, don't breed them. And I will also get into kind of the, the, re, the ways in which Mexicans are portrayed, uh, portrayed as, as breeders. Demands uh, like these 
comment at anti-immigration rallies and on websites were reinforced by the authority of politicians such as Georgia Congressman Phil Gingry, a retired doctor who wrote a letter to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention stating that children from Central America were bringing in diseases like H1N1, dengue fever, and Ebola, the last a disease that has never been found in Central America, and that they lacked the basic immunizations. So again, just trying to reinforce that uh, we, it may be easy to dismiss people like Trump. It may be easy to, to dismiss protesters. But you also have you know, doctors chiming in, you know, elected uh, officials writing to the, the CDC. Gingrich's charges were challenged in the mainstream media and by the government. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services stated that all of the children have received a wellness exam. Anyone who was found not to have a disease was quarantined. And in fact, many of these children had higher vaccination, or overall these children had higher vaccination rates than the children in the United States because their sending countries had universal uh, vaccination plans. Yet even though they had little basis in fact, Gingrich's charges and similar characterizations that depicted the children fleeing from Central America as vectors of disease persisted. When they are not presented as carriers of disease, Mexican immigrants can be portrayed as physically abnormal. In 2013, as discussions raged around legislation offering a path to citizenship for the dreamers, the undocumented youth brought to the U.S. as children by their parents, Representative Steve King claimed, quote, for everyone who's a valedictorian, there's a hundred out there that weigh 130 pounds and they've got calves the size of cantaloupes because they're hauling 75 pounds of marijuana across the desert. Those people would be legalized with the same act. In response, the dreamers went to King's office on the hill and loaded and filled it with these cantaloupes um, and playing on that, the fact that kind of the... the um, fact that it would be immigrants who were picking these cantaloupes, so putting this note on there. Uh, These comments elicit the image of Mexicans as some kind of aberration, physically adapted to transport drugs to the United States and corrupting its people in the process. The comments also echo those made 100 years earlier by agribusiness leaders that Mexicans should be exempt from immigration from uh, immigration restric- restrictions placed on European and Asian immigrants because they were more biologically suited to perform agricultural labor. And here you see a slide of a Mexican worker p- performing this kind of labor. And um, in our you know, own backyard of Imperial Valley, one of the, the you know, where it can be become 110 degrees, uh, lobbyists would argue that Mexicans could withstand the heat better um, and were closer to the ground and more suited for stoop labor. And here you see this kind of stoop labor going on. What isn't explained is that that short-handled hoe isn't necessary for the task. The short-handled hoe was developed because uh, agri- uh, uh, lead- uh, the bosses in the field wanted to make sure that the Mexican workers were working, and it was much easier to see who was working and not working if they were stooped over, because if they weren't stooped over, they were standing up, and it was easy to supervise. While it would be easy to dismiss such rhetoric as the hyperbole so often offered up by politicians, media pundits and nativists, um, it raises an important question, Why? Why is disease such a powerful trope for invoking fear and loathing in the U.S.-Mexico borderlands? Examples like those I've already given stigmatize Mexicans once. They're stigmatized as drug carriers, for example. 
why stigmatize them as disease carriers as well? The answer lies partly in the fact that it has proven impossible to enforce an airtight U.S.-Mexico border. The border's sheer length, spanning almost 2,000 miles, plus the ongoing need for Mexican labor in the U.S., which often guarantees jobs for those who do cross the border, have deemed border policing a formidable challenge. Nor is deportation a blanket solution, as it would require deporting over 11 million people, about half of whom are Mexican. The national borders are porous, and a large immigrant population, both documented and undocumented, is firmly established in the U.S. Thus, our geographic borders may not always be enforceable, and by invoking the image of Mexicans as different from us, helps to construct social and cultural internal borders against those Mexicans and even Mexican-Americans who successfully cross the border and reside in the United States. Trump's statement emphasizes this difference. They're not sending you. Disease tropes strengthen these internal borders by taking immigrants' otherness, intensifying it, and creating a rationale that justifies exclusion and demonization. As scholar Susan Craddock argues, disease is particularly effect- a particularly effective mechanism because it does not just mark deviance. Used as accusation toward the already deviant, disease intensifies the rhetoric of hatred, fear, and blame utilized against undesirable populations. It shifts the quality of this rhetoric from the socially constructed to the medically legitimated, from a vaguely if forcefully defined rationale of difference to a rational basis for surveillance, control, and exclusion. In tonight's talk, I argue that disease tropes haven't just, I, um, I have just discussed persist today and are particularly pernicious when dealing with Mexicans and immigration precisely because they are not new. I connect disease-based stigmatization of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans to discourses of scientific racialization that date back to the 19th century and the U.S. war with Mexico. I demonstrate how representations of Mexicans as disease carriers have been revived, resuscitated, and recreated from then to the present. I draw primarily on evidence from California because of its historic and contemporary large population. Further, as I will show tonight, California was a hotbed for scientific, medical, and public health standards, programs, and policies. California shaped the meaning of Mexicans and Mexicans' place in the U.S. racial hierarchy for generation after generation. As we see in the remarks like Trump's and others, the historical shaping has a powerful legacy. Cultural historian George Lipsick coined the term the long fetch of history to draw attention to the hidden power of the past and its ability to shape current reality. Whether consciously or not, we tend to be swayed by the force of past arguments. This long fetch spans more than a century. Despite the passage of time and changes in social and cultural norms, the ways in which Mexicans are marginalized and disenfranchised remain startlingly consistent and continue to shape policy and perspectives today. So the first, um, so we'll go back to the 19th century. And uh, the U.S. war with Mexico is from 1846 to 1848. At the end of that war, there was a Treaty of Guadalupe between the U.S. and Mexico. 
And there was a big debate. What are, you know, Mexico ceded one-third of its lands to, Me- to the U.S. in the treaty. And there were already uh, you know, Mexicans living and settled in these, these areas, you know, we, the missions being one example of this. So what was going to happen to all those Mexicans living here? At that time, and, um, you know, would they become citizens? This is 1848, and at this point, you know, slavery is still legal. Um, native, you know, genocide of Native Americans is going on. The only people who can legally naturalize and become citizens are whites, according to the 17 Naturalization Act. So there was much controversy about what it would mean to incorporate Mexican lands. And there were a lot of people, a lot of politicians that argued it would be worth it not to have Mexico cede its lands to not worry about that. Um, but what I want to um, point you, uh, draw your attention to in this is that scientific racialization uh, served as much of the rationale for that. So um, Manifest Destiny (laughs) was an ideology during this time period that also um, guided people's uh, rationale of understanding of the overtake of the West, this idea that white Americans would take over the West, uh, that there was a, a difference in the races between whites and Mexicans. So in debates about whether or not to incorporate Mexican lands and, by extensions, Mexican people, a former vice president and then Southern California Senator John Calhoun argued, we have never dreamt of incorporating into our union any but the Caucasian race, the free white race. To incorporate Mexico would be the first instance of the kind of incorporating an Indian race. I protest against such a union as that. Calhoun was not alone in his sentiments. Pennsylvania Congressman James Polk, also originator of the phrase, In God We Trust, used on U.S. currency, vehemently opposed incorporation of Mexicans, citing fundamental racial differences between Mexicans and whites. The Mexican provinces are filled with a population not only degraded, but of every possible shade and variety of color and complexion. From the deep black of the Negro to the sallow white of the Mexican Indian. If we annex these provinces to our union, will we admit those who are now the free citizens of Mexico to the privileges of American citizenship? If this policy should be pursued, one of two consequences must follow annexation. Either the American slave must become free or the Mexican Negro and mulatto must become slaves. So again, really emphasizing that there is a racial hierarchy in the U.S., that um, these politicians were aware of that, and that to admit Mexicans in as citizens, which at this point was only equated with whiteness, would disrupt that racial order. These quotes do more than underscore the racism of the day. They demonstrate that biological fitness was understood to be directly and closely tied to fitness for self-government. In the 20th century, such explicit biological racialization would give way to more cultural understandings of race and ethnicity. But as I explain um, further in the talk, understandings of race, whether biological or cultural, continue to define Mexicans' place in the U.S. for generations to come. And so now let's move forward to the 20th century. Mexicans are incorporated into the U.S., um, and given all the, the things that you know, we generally know about U.S. history in terms of um, takeover of the West, uh, native genocide, uh, in addition with that me- many Mexicans who did own property at the time of U.S. takeover lost it under U.S. law and were not able to defend themselves in court either because they didn't have the money, um, they had never 
uh, kept track of their land in the way that the U.S. required, and so then you know lost it for not being able to prove which was their land. For all these reasons, the Mexican population it continued to decline in the 19th century. And so when we talk about Mexican immigration as a problem, that really didn't happen after the Mexican uh, for the rest of the 19th century and even into the 20th century. There's very little written about that until the 1910s. And there's a few things that happened in the 1910s. Uh, there's an increased need for labor, especially agricultural labor with the advent of water systems, irrigation systems. And there's the Mexican Revolution. And so you both have, the, you have these push-pull factors. As, as we know, in the early 20th century, there's a rise of immigration overall in the U.S., and there's also a rise of the United States public health system. It's when they really become um, professionalized in this way that we think of public health officials today in the United States Public Health Service. And so the Border Patrol isn't created until 1924, but uh, some of the earliest people guarding those borders are the United States public health officials. And these public health standards help define and shape attitudes and regulations directed at this new laboring class. Beginning in 1916, Mexicans who crossed the U.S.-Mexico border underwent intrusive, humiliating, and harmful chemical baths and physical examinations at the direction of the United States Public Health Service. The rationale for these actions was the belief that Mexicans were bringing disease into the United States. And indeed, there was an outbreak of typhus in Mexico around this time period. Thus, public health policies helped to secure the U.S.-Mexico border and to mark Mexicans as outsiders even before the advent of more readily identifiable gatekeeping institutions such as the, uh, the, the Border Patrol, which was created in 1924. And so these, and many of these regulations stayed in place long after uh, the, the typhus epidemic was quelled in Mexico. As Mexicans increasingly settled in the United States, public health officials and medicalized discourse continued to help define their place in the U.S. racial hierarchy. During this time period, interest in the study and practices of eugenics was rapidly expanding. Eugenicists believed that the quality of inherited characteristics varied across human populations and that controlling reproduction to increase offspring among those with superior traits and decrease or end reproduction along those with inferior traits would result in the overall improvement of the human race. So we have a few, um, um, a few ways to illustrate this. So there were different public health programs at the time, um, ones that really inc- encouraged um, more breeding for white families, um, and so many of these families would, you know, uh, just like you go to the Del Mar Fair today and there are different contests, or, or I mean, not even go that far, or, um, you know, as we're celebrating the, uh, we just celebrated Balboa Park's 100-year anniversary because that's where the Pan Pacific Exposition was held. There would be booths that talked about better breeding, um, ways in which that we could improve the country through increasing uh, the size of white families, and people won prizes, Uh, for how big their families were. On the flip side, (laughs) you had stories like this circulate. Uh, This is from the Los Angeles Times in 1930, the queen of Mexican mothers and her brood. And so it talks about this Mexican woman and all her children. Um, And there was a, a, in eugenics, there was this thinking of positive eugenics encouraging certain populations to breed um, and negative eugenics, trying to decrease the other... um, the birth in other families. 
and you see the way that it's then these ideas are t these ideologies, these ideas are tied into public policy, um, uh, public health programs. So this is something from uh, one of the the fairs at the time, and it reads at the top: Every fifteen thousand seconds, a hundred dollars of your money goes for the case of persons up here with bad heredity, such as the insane, feeble-minded criminals and other defects. And these were really elastic terms, feeble-minded, who might be criminally minded. Um, and these were ways in which health inspectors put uh, some of the categories in which health inspectors could deny people from entering the U.S. Though actually, for the most part, they tried not to. They were looking for laborers, especially um, in the early 20th century, and then it starts to change. Uh, and then this one is, uh, this light flashes every 16 seconds. Every 16 seconds, a person is born in the United States. And then it talks about, um, this one is about which of Americans, about 4% of Americans are fit for leadership. And so much about like this idea of who is fit to be a citizen, who is fit for leadership, was tied into this idea of eugenics. The prevalence and power of eugenic thought is perhaps most apparent in the passage of state laws beginning in 1907 that mandated forced sterilizations of men and women considered mentally inferior or otherwise unfit to propagate. California passed a sterilization law in 1909, and by 1964, the state had sterilized more than 20,000 people, which is close to one-third of the national total with women of color and immigrant women sterilized at disproportionately higher rates. Um, and there are books written on this in terms of even how youth were sterilized in uh, like juvenile hall-type homes, um, in prisons, and in um, uh, mental health facilities. The majority of public health officials distanced themselves from the most extreme eugenics, eugenics policies. Um, but we also see the way that this idea of the racial hierarchy got incorporated in different ways. And so we see this here. Um, there were different, different programs that they made, like this one. The, um, this is for families in a railroad camp in California. Uh, this is from one of the health reports. And so they would actually set up these well baby clinics in the railroad camps so that they could uh, directly treat Mexican mothers teach them how to um, birth their children, how to feed their children, um, because they didn't think that they were doing it properly. And then um, another image here as well. And so a lot of the reports talk about that the Mexican mothers did not want to go. <laughs> they did not want to be told that they were doing it, uh, doing things wrong. Um, and you know, uh, it, it's another example that shows how much public health was tied to producing labors and making sure that this country had good labors to do this country because a lot of these, uh, these camps were set up in work camps, agricultural camps, labor camps, uh, railroad camps, uh, Simon's Brickyard, different brickyards. And so it was really trying to make sure that the labors were healthy, were productive. When we move now to the 1924, uh, immigration changes drastically in 1924 because the Immigration Act of 1924 is passed. 
And this is an immigration act that tries to reduce the number of immigrants coming in now. Not as many laborers are needed. Uh, but it's not Mexicans who are put on the quotas. So as much as I've been telling you all the ways in which Mexican labor was controlled, it was, often t- it was very much uh, European immigrants. And people talk about this at a time where there's a racial hierarchy within whites. So really, uh, you, know, you, have Ger- you have Germans, you have the British, who have much larger proportion- numbers of quotas um, or a, a numer- numbers in which they can immigrate. And other groups like Greeks, Syrians, uh, Italians, who have much smaller quotas. Um, I, so only so few of them can immigrate. Uh, Asians are banned altogether. And so once this law passes, what happens is that there's a big outcry from people, especially in the Southwest, who are saying, wait a minute, why, why let... Um, why deny the Italian but let the Mexican continue to immigrate? What is the racial logic in that? And much of that had to do with uh, southwestern uh, agricultural leaders who were lobbying for Mexicans, who were, didn't want these restrictions placed on them because they wanted those labors. Nonetheless, different politicians start to rally. And they try, between 1924 and 1930, they proposed about 22 bills to try to increase the restrictions on Mexican immigration. What happens in that is that science becomes um, a much higher, a much more, um, uh, becomes a clarion call of why we should change these immigration laws. And uh, these politicians start to quote uh, public health officials, public health reports, many of them from California because, you know, by 1930, Los Angeles has the largest population of Mexicans living there outside of Mexico. And so uh, it's public health officials in Los Angeles who know this population and who are writing these reports and then sending them to health officials as well. Uh, When I was researching the book, I went to Washington, D.C. many times. I went to the National Archives, which is kind of like the the attic for America with all these uh, different records there. And um, you saw all these reports from public health officials in Los Angeles writing to all the different immigration committee members saying, do you know what's going on in California? You know, without the internet, without uh, cell phones, without email, sometimes uh, you know, what was going on in D.C. was less affected by what was going on in the West Coast. And the public health officials on the West Coast wanted these, public, these uh, politicians to know what was going on, that they felt you know, if they wanted to change these laws, they were going to give them the data to support it. And so you had people like John Box from Texas, who was a big proponent against uh, anti-immigration, citing reports from L.A., uh, saying things that, you know, like Mexicans uh, were overburdening charity departments, hospital services, and particularly maternity wards. He also claimed that Mexican children were overstraining the services of the children's hospital. In another bill... Um, They quote from a 1926 report by the California Commission of Immigration and Housing that, quote, for the most part, Mexicans are Indians and very seldom become naturalized. They know little of sanitation and are very low mentally and are generally unhealthy. And there are also other opponents outside of public health officials, such as um, the New York lawyer uh, Madison Grant, who wrote numerous articles in support of these immigration bills. 
And these medicalized constructions of Mexicans were a common theme in his publications with titles such as, quote, The Menace of Mexican Immigration, The Influx of Mexican Amerins, and Mexicans are Ruin. And these authors showcased their belief in the inferiority of Mexicans. Some of these articles were published in extremist journals such as Eugenics, a journal for race betterment. But others made their way into publications, uh, very popular publications, such as the Saturday Evening Post, which at that time had a circulation of over 2 million, which revealed the degrees to which eugenics-based reasoning uh, was influential and entered mainstream culture. Many of these bills, or really none of these bills, passed in part because of those lobbying efforts that I mentioned and because of ties the U.S. had to Mexico um, and their interest in oil-rich areas. The Depression. So the Depression is a time where, um, you know, with, with lack of resources, lack of jobs, um, much less social services, that people are really looking for a scapegoat at this time. And in California, uh, Mexicans were often those scapegoats. And so a lot of the literature written about this has often emphasized that Mexicans become economic scapegoats, that they're charity burdens, um, that they're welfare burdens, and that they should be deported. But what I found in my research is that public health, again, was very instrumental in shaping the ideas of Mexicans at this time. So... The earlier slide that I showed you about Mexicans reproducing, that had never really, that was an image um, that was always linked to race betterment, um, um, negative uh, eugenics. But now these, that kind of talk became linked to, and that leads to them being charity burdens. So this is also a picture from the LA Times. And it talks about how 39 persons were deported here yesterday. Among those sent out was uh, Simon Alvarado and his family, shown here. He and his wife acquired eight children uh, in the 11 years they have been here. And the country has spent more than $7,000 on them. And so, again, big families mean uh, a big bill for U.S. taxpayers. Of course, what is kind of alighted here is that they, you know, this phrase, they've acquired these children. It means that they're deporting American citizens. And there's really no discussion of this at all at this time. Um, and and we, we can, you know, guess why in terms of, you know, they're seen as health risks, they're seen as charity burdens. The Depression also brought back a return to biological determinism. So we can argue, well, you know, there was a lot at stake. It's the Depression. Um, there, was, there was little to go around. But you also see that uh, doctors, uh, uh, that people started changing the way that they analyzed disease rates, how they thought of disease. California was thought as a home to tuberculosis, uh, people seeking relief from their tuberculosis. It was, called, it was a whole movement called the Health Seekers. Uh, as we saw in the earlier slides, public health officials were trying to Americanize Mexicans in the 1910s to some degree, having these well baby clinics, inviting them in. The 1930s is a complete reversal of this. And so people, you know, health officials start to um, uh, uh, shift attention to Mexicans as you know, uh, people who could receive this, this health care to Mexicans as vectors of tuberculosis. So uh, one of the examples, uh, and, this, that, and they trace this to their genetic inferiority. So this kind of biological determinism, ge- genetic inferiority that had once been talked to, talked about mainly in the 19th century in regards to manifest destiny, now returns in the 1930s. In a journal article entitled, quote, Tuberculosis in Racial Types with Special Reference to Mexicans, 
The author, Dr. Benjamin Goldberg, claimed that all men are not created equal and that health heredity is a part of biological heredity. Thus, he called for stricter immigration laws, warning, that the, pub- warning the public that the Mexican is coming in thousands. The depiction of Mexicans as diseased, charity-seeking, um, and, and in large numbers did more than place them outside of the bounds of social membership in the United States. These negative cultural constructions prevented some Mexicans from remaining in the country at all. And what we see in the 1930s is that when we talk about these deportations, Mexicans aren't just... Uh, uh, there are repatriation programs where the county will, will tell Mexicans, you know, you are not allowed to receive any more charity. We have these free passes, um, train fares that you could return to Mexico. But other times are rounded up in large numbers um, and, you know, have no time to return home, tell their family they're being deported, take any of their possessions. But medically, you know, for for the purposes of this talk, there's also what's called a transportation setup uh, section set up in General Hospital in, La- in Los Angeles County. So it's a county hospital, and because it's a county hospital, it counts as receiving charity if you receive any, any medical services there. And so somebody who would go receive medical services there, if they couldn't prove they were a citizen, would be uh, um, deported directly from the hospital. And in my research, I have lists and lists of these folks, uh, people with tuberculosis, uh, people with hernias, people who were injured, a lot who were injured um, on the job, um, and uh, mothers who gave birth to children who are, transport, who are transported back with their infants. Again, they're infants who are citizens. Now, these constructions of Mexicans were not unprecedented. Um, but we also see that this is the 1930s, and this really comes at the heels of a major shift in, in uh, the Mexican-American population in the U.S. In the 19th, with so much deportation, and now with Mexicans being established in the U.S. since the 1910s, increasing population since the 1910s with the revolution, with the growth of need for labor, um, you start to have for the first time a majority Mexican-American population, no longer a majority Mexican population, Mexican-American population. And so all these kinds of ideas of Mexicans as disease carriers, as charity seekers that have been going on now for decades, also serves to stigmatize Mexicans, or Mexican-Americans. And this is a, a time of World War II. People often think of this, um, especially post-World War II, as a time of hope and prosperity. Um, even for Mexican-Americans, that they think, you know, we fought in World War II, we were part of the home front. And what they find increasingly is a lot of the same stigma. They find, um, you know, uh, that they're still segregated into different neighborhoods, into different schools, um, out of unions, um, not allowed to eat at, at restaurant at certain restaurants, um, that these kinds of, of signs, you know, they, they would encounter if they would try, especially uh, throughout the Southwest. Um, and we can see also that continuation of medicalized discourse directed at this group. And so one example is this Zoot Suit Riots in 1943. Uh, and this is an example of simmering tensions between Mexican-American youth in L.A. as known as Zoot Suiters because of the style of the outfits that they wore and military servicemen, which erupted into a week-long race riot. Mobs of white servicemen descended on East Los Angeles, aiming to attack zoot suiters and literally strip them of their zoot suits, which the military men viewed as un-American and as unpatriotic, and the zoot suiters as unpatriotic because they were not in the military. 
the political establishment, uh, law enforcement, and the media blamed the riots on Mexican-Americans, allegedly deviant and violent culture. During the Zoot Suit riots, Los Angeles Sheriff Ed Ayers added institutional authority to the prevailing stereotypes by assigning responsibility for the violence to the inborn characteristics of the Mexican element, which had a desire to use a knife or some other lethal weapon. Sheriff Ayers' statements echoed biological racialization dating back to the 19th century and the doctrine of manifest destiny, but updated with a dash of contemporary theory regarding juvenile delinquency. Despite readily acknowledging the structural discrimination Mexicans faced at work, school, and recreational sites, Ayers argued that the basic cause of crimes committed by Mexicans was biological. Not to put a too fine a point on it, the, chef, the sheriff argued, quote, Although a wildcat and a domestic cat are of the same family, they have certain biological characteristics so different that while one may be domesticated, the other would have to be caged or kept in captivity. And there is practically as much difference between the races of man. Clearly, the Mexican male was a lawbreaker by biological design, according to Ayers, whether or not he had actually committed a crime, and regardless of how many generations he had lived in the United States. The second example that I would present to you of how this biological racism affected Mexicans in the 1940s uh, is through the case of Mendez versus Westminster. So many of us are familiar with the case of Brown v. Board and how that ended uh, the, the doctrine of separate but equal. But this case w- uh, was, tra- or that, that doctrine in, that was ruled on in Plessy versus Ferguson in 1897 had been challenged before. Here in San Diego through the Lemon Grove case um, and up in the Orange County area, LA area through the Mendez versus Westminster case. And here you have a family, 10 families, or no, uh, one family, Mendez, and then an, another group of families that joins him, um, arguing that their children should not be put in segregated schools. And just to give you a sense of how arbitrary that is, um, Mendez's wife had gone with her sister-in-law, and because her sister-in-law had lighter appearance and her children had lighter appearance, her children were allowed into the white school, but Mendez's family was uh, told that they had, their children had to go to the Mexican school. In this case, the plaintiffs argued that Mexicans were being denied and equal protection, uh, were being denied equal protection under the law. In his ruling, the appeals court judge used much of the legal reasoning that would later be seen in Brown, such as rejecting the principle of separate but equal. Part of the defense rested on the familiar argument that Mexicans were disease carriers and that they were intellectually inferior. These claims harken back to earlier eugenics arguments and practices, such as using low IQ scores to justify institutionalizing and even sterilizing youth of color. The district superintendent in the Mendez case maintained that Mexicans needed to be segregated because they, quote, had lice and pedigo and generally dirty hands, face, neck, and ears, and that they did not have the mental ability of the white children. And so you see at this time of you know, Mexican-Americans trying to gain full citizenship, not just legal citizenship, how these discourses continue. We also see these discourses continuing uh, past 1965. And we usually think of 1965 as you know, the nadir of civil rights, Civil Rights Act, um, social movements. And we really, many, 
many people trace a, a pivotal shift in the United States in terms of race relations. But we see this discourse carrying on beyond that. And so one, where, one place that we see that is um, in this case that comes out in the 1970s uh, through Madrigal versus Quilligan. So in that same L.A. County hospital that I told you about in the 1930s where they had sent set up a deportation or section under the, the euphemism transportation section, there is filed a lawsuit by 10 Mexican and Mexican-American women saying that they were forcibly sterilized. And so they argue that, they, uh, that the doctors denied them um, epidurals, that they um, um, promised epidurals if they would fo- sign the sterilization papers that doctors told them that the sterilization papers, uh, that the sterilization procedure was reversible. Um, and then, you know, some were uh, that, that uh, had been told that uh, she, one, one plaintiff, uh, Jovita Rivera, said that a doctor told her to have the operation, quote, because her children were a burden on the government. In the end, the judge ruled in favor of the hospital, citing that there had been a communication breakdown and that it was unreasonable for the doctors to have been expected to understand Mexican culture well enough to have assessed the effects of the sterilization on these women. These women were targeted because they were Mexican and were believed to be burdens on U.S. society. And they had witnesses. Karen Benker, a medical student at the time, was a key witness who testified against the doctors involved in the suit. She described a hospital culture in which Mexican patients were viewed as irresponsible breeders and welfare recipients. She testified that the lead defendant, Dr. Quilligan, the head of obstetrics and gynecology at County General, maintained that, quote, poor minority women in L.A. were having too many babies and that it was a strain on society and that it would be good to have them sterilized. So we hear, see here the same extension of that eugenics argument that I talk about um, in the 1910s, 1920s, 1930s. The procedures themselves were financed by the government from family planning initiatives on the war on poverty, the 1964 legislation introduced by President Johnson to help the poor. And there's a wonderful, wonderful new documentary out on this case called No Mas Bebes, and USD is going to, we've, we've screened it here at UCSD already, I think last month or two months ago. And USD is going to have it in the first week of February. Uh, but it's a, it, no mas bebes. It's a wonderful documentary. The notion that Mexicans overburdened the government, particularly in public health education and welfare services, continued and undergirded legislative changes in the 1990s. And so we see this uh, going on with Proposition 187, which happened in 1994. And this was one of the ads that uh, was used uh, for Prop 187, uh, which was going to d- uh, deny public health services to immigrants, including education, social services, medical. Uh, and it says, why do the Democrats make Californians pay for illegal immigration? And I think on the surface, if we think, if we think, when we think back on this campaign, campaign, we think of it as just an anti-immigrant campaign. But if you look at the services that it targeted, many scholars have argued that actually it's really focused more that as Mexican and women, Mexican women and children as the problem of illegal immigration or immigration, because Mexican women and children sig- signify and symbolize a much more settled population. It's okay to have Mexican immigration when these laborers go back, but if they have their women and children here, they're more likely to settle. And so, um, you know, the, many people have argued that it, it's, it's really one that's a, a gendered uh, immigrant, immig- anti-immigration policy. 
One of the effects of this, of course, it was then people were too scared to go to clinics. So all this work that you know, public health officials had done to get people to go to clinics, um, their, clinic, their attendance rates dropped in Mexican areas, even with many of their patients who were not just documented, or, um, but many who were citizens um, because of the fear that it, it brought into the community. So I, in my la- few minutes left, I want, to, um, I want to end on a high. <laughs> Okay, there's hope. (laughs) Remember that race is made in America and we can unmake it. In explaining why medicalized racialization has been so pernicious, I have described events, legislation, court cases, government policies, public health programs and standards, popular ideologies and discourses um, that directly or indirectly marginalize Mexicans. But there's more to the story. Mexican, American, Mexican and Mexican Americans have not simply accepted and endured anti-immigrant rhetoric, policies, and attitudes. Throughout the last century and continuing today, individuals, communities, and organizations have worked hard to rebut these stereotypes, overcome racism, and improve the conditions of everyday life. Often the very health injuries and social indignities that have most seriously threatened Mexicans' well-being have become catalysts for building positive Mexican and Mexican-American identities. And so I'll give you a couple examples. One is there's this campaign uh, uh, artwork uh, that is called Sun Mad Raisins, unnaturally grown with uh, insecticides, uh, herbicides, pesticides uh, by Esther Hernandez in 1982. And this is really a response to many uh, of the campaigns done by the UFW. We often think of the UFW, the United Farms Worker Association that was led by Cesar Chavez, as bringing unionization and fair wages to to the UFW, which it did. But they also really campaigned for uh, improved health conditions, better toilet facilities, which is something that, you know, those, the, I have a letter from the Mexicans in that railroad camp that I showed you that they had been arguing for that since 1916. Um, you know, toilets in the fields, um, not to spray before they had to pick the fruit, to make sure that they got tested for pesticide spraying, that there were regulations around that. Uh, so health and uh, health justice has very much been part of the story. Another group that we see really fighting around health conditions and their community are are the Mothers of East Los Angeles. This is a group that first came together in the late 1980s to advocate for environmental justice for their community. Mothers of East LA's uh, halted the construction of a state prison that was slated to be built in East LA and a toxic waste incinerator. They've fought for things um, in their neighborhoods like uh, campaigns against lead poisoning, increased awareness around immunizations, removing graffiti, and raising funds for higher education, demonstrating how social and environmental struggles come together. In tonight's talk, I demonstrated the power of the past by showing how cultural and structural forces of scientific racism that have shaped the historical experiences of Mexicans in the U.S. continue to operate in the present. Because this history endures in cultural representations and is built into institutional structures and practices, it is an ever-present reminder to Mexicans that they remain less than fully accepted in U.S. society. Such an awareness has a powerful real-life implications, complicating Mexican and Mexican-Americans' relations with the healthcare system in many ways. Um, and another paper I just wrote is looking at the, all the different reasons why uh, Latinos didn't signed up in much lower numbers than other groups for the Affordable Care Act. 
My arguments also demonstrate that the importance of continued struggle and resistance over the meaning of medicine, health, and health care for Mexicans. Practices and policies with such deep roots are especially tenacious. They resurface again and again as they tend to be more readily and unquestionably accepted and built upon compared to wholly new approaches. Thus, despite the passage of time and changes in social and cultural norms, much of what served to marginalize and disenfranchise Mexicans more than a century ago has been revived and recycled to marginalize this group in the present. But many of the examples above also show the power of solidarity and collective mobilization to challenge these long-standing patterns. The past may be prologue, but it need not be destiny. Thanks for a great talk. And my question would be more about the issue of class as well as race, because it could be there might be Mexican-Americans that have PhDs, and they're treated equally like any other American versus the uh, labor in the field. So is, is that an issue in all of this? That's a great question. Uh, does the issue of class make a difference? Yes and no. Uh, in some, in, we have examples of um, many of the Mexican workers who came like in the early 19th century, for example, were recruited as laborers. And so it's difficult to come up with those examples of how class would uh, play a role. But we do have some examples. One are when diplomats pass, and they are not treated in the same ways. Uh, another example, and this is just from very recent research, that New Orleans, um, uh, that they had immigration of Mexicans there. We've studied Mexicans in the South very little. And many of them were more middle-class and upper-class Mexicans who went, who tried to establish businesses. Uh, so this also shows the ways in which there was stigmatization of Mexicans uh, crossing the border because, you know, the idea was there's a type, you know, for, I'll use the typhus epidemic as an example. You know, if, if someone is crossing from Mexico, they need to go through this fumigation. They need to go through all these things. But anybody who was middle class or upper class could escape that. These, those folks still did uh, receive or were the object of some stigmatization, though, because there are many letters to uh, U.S. politicians, to the, the State Department, to the Immigration Service from the Mexican Council throughout the 10s, 20s, 30s, 40s that talk about um, even, with, even when people are, are business leaders, um, diplomats, that they are being discriminated against. So it, it could happen, um, but it, it also... You know, sometimes they were stigmatized as a class, as a whole. Some of the same kinds of arguments were present in uh, California in the 1860s, 70s, 80s, leading up to the Chinese Exclusion Act, des describing Chinese immigrants using the language of science and disease and vectors of disease. So could you talk about the relationship between this discourse that you've described for Mexican-Americans and Mexicans and how it has been used or its relationship to similar kinds of discourses for Chinese or African-Americans or other um, non-European uh, folks in the United States. Thank you. Well, in my book, How Race is Made in America, <laughs> I talk about, um, well, well, even in Fit to be Citizens, Fit to be Citizens is really looking at Mexican immigration, but it starts by looking at the Chinese. So I, I had started off writing a book 
about Mexican-Americans, Mexican immigration to Los Angeles, how race shaped, um, you know, how these ideas of race shaped their incorporation, not incorporation there. Uh, but what, what I, when I started doing my research, I saw that in Los Angeles, officials were not concerned with Mexicans in the late 19th century, early 20th. They were concerned with Chinese. Um, and so a lot of these arguments that I mention when I say, oh, you know, that, uh, I mention it for the 20th, they are going on for Chinese at this time because that is the group that's being recruited as laborers. And so there's a wonderful book by a colleague, that, um, a former colleague here, Nayan Shah, called Contagious Divides, that looks at that for San Francisco. Um, and, the, you know, it's interesting because the, the rules are very different. The rules that are never applied to Mexicans. You know, Chinese are, are marginalized and segregated, and so they work as, as launderers, they work uh, in restaurants, and so there are these ordinances that San Francisco comes up with that aren't racialized or, you know, don't include race in the, the, the language of it, but are so clearly directed at them in terms of you cannot walk on the sidewalk with a pole, you know, this long, because that's how the Chinese would transport uh, this. Uh, there were laws against um, um, women, ch- uh, Chinese women immigrating to the United States. Um, they were, you know, they just wanted the laborers. And so many men, many Chinese men would live together, save money in these what they called bachelor societies. So there's these cubic air ordinances around how they should, you know, live. And so what I argue... You know, what I try to show in Fit to be Citizens is all these kinds of uh, zoning and ordinances and labor laws that they put up towards the Chinese once they're banned and aren't allowed to immigrate and now Mexicans are the new immigrant group, that racism has a new place to land. And what I try to show, and so that, that's what I do like in, you know, in a quick chapter. And it's a question that haunted me, which is why I wrote the second book was saying, Everything I see, when I read something about this group, I see it being carried over to this other group. And that's what I mean by that script. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.